The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Welcome to the Kotki Ride Home for Tuesday, December 8th, 2020. I'm Jackson Bird. The COVID vaccines headed for distribution were developed on the fastest timeline in the history of vaccines. But could we do it even quicker next time? Or make the vaccine before an outbreak? And speaking of vaccines, William Shakespeare officially got vaccinated for COVID-19 today. Yep, you heard that right. And in other weird news, Mount Everest is taller than we previously thought. Plus, a website to help you stop judging books by their covers. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. There's a great piece in New York Magazine's The Intelligencer yesterday about the timeline of vaccine development this year, specifically the Moderna vaccine, and it raises some interesting points about the future of vaccine development. So the Moderna vaccine represents the fastest vaccine development in the history of vaccines, with all the others, Pfizer-BioNTech and Oxford-AstraZeneca, close behind it. And while we didn't hear about its efficacy rate of 94.5% until mid-November, the Moderna vaccine was designed by January 13th. January 13th. That's a week before the first confirmed case in the United States and a full month before the first death. The rest of the year was spent testing it for efficacy and safety. Now, that's not to say any of that should have been rushed, but in consulting with the experts, the article argues that we could perhaps significantly reduce that period of time in the future, changing the reputation of vaccines from that of a sort of belated deus ex machina, a solve to stamp out the disease in the future, but arriving too late to prevent most of the destruction, to one which is actually effective in stamping out the disease before it spreads uncontrollably. Quoting the Intelligencer, Rethinking our approach to vaccine development, the scientists I spoke to for this story told me could mean moving faster without moving any more recklessly. A layperson might look at the 2020 timelines and question whether, in the case of an onrushing pandemic, a lengthy Phase 3 trial, which tests for efficacy, is necessary. But the scientists I spoke to about the way this pandemic may reshape future vaccine development were more focused on how to accelerate or skip phase one, which tests for safety. More precisely, they thought it would be possible to do all the research, development, preclinical testing, and phase one trials for new viral pandemics before those new viruses had even emerged, to have those vaccines sitting on the shelf and ready to go when they did. They also thought it was possible to do this for nearly the entire universe of potential future viral pandemics, at least 90% of them, one of them told me, and likely more. 
As Peter Hotez from the Baylor College of Medicine explained to me, the major reason this vaccine timeline has shrunk is that much of the research and preclinical animal testing was done in the aftermath of the 2003 SARS pandemic. That's, for instance, how we knew to target the spike protein. This would be the model. Scientists have a very clear sense of which virus families have pandemic potential, and given the resemblance of those viruses, can develop not only vaccines for all of them, but also ones that could easily be tweaked to respond to new variants within those families. We do this every year for influenza, Georgetown virologist Angela Rasmussen says. We don't know which influenza viruses are going to be circulating, so we make our best guess, and then we formulate that into a vaccine using essentially the same technology platform that all other influenza vaccines are based on. The whole process takes a few months and utilizes a platform that we already know is basically safe. With enough funding, you could do the same for viral pandemics, and indeed conduct phase one trials for the entire set of possible future outbreaks before any of them made themselves known to the public. In the case of a pandemic produced by a new strain in these families, you might want to do some limited additional safety testing, but because the most consequential adverse effects take place in the days right after the vaccine is given, that additional diligence could be almost immediate. End quote. Okay, that all sounds great, but how much would such a pie-in-the-sky idea cost? Florian Kramer, a vaccine scientist at Mount Sinai, says about 20 to 30 million dollars per vaccine. If we did 50 to 100 different viruses, quote, to functionally cover all the phylogenies that could give rise to pandemic strains in the future, end quote, the total amount, including research and clinical trials, would be between one and three billion dollars. By comparison, the U.S. government has already spent over $4 trillion on pandemic relief for COVID-19 alone. Or, for another comparison, Kramer points to the cost of an F-35 fighter jet. One of those planes is equivalent to the cost of developing vaccines for five potential pandemics. And vaccines for all of those 50 to 100 potential pandemics would represent a fraction of the fighter jet program as a whole in this country. But of course, Kramer says he's not holding his breath that it would actually happen. But if it were to, Kramer says we could even go as far as doing some phase three testing preemptively, for existing strains at least, and even if a more novel strain came about and phase three testing was required, it could start as soon as the new disease was identified and be done in ten weeks. Of course, the distribution would be another challenge that could take quite a while, though hopefully, and I know I'm being optimistic here, we will have learned some things from whatever challenges we encounter on this rollout. But as the intelligencer points out, if a vaccine for a future pandemic could be ready in just three months, three months from the design of the Moderna vaccine was April 13th, before the spikes and overcapacity hospitals hit most of the U.S., that was all still to come. And with future pandemics, that could all be avoided if we put the necessary resources behind this kind of vaccine development and public health infrastructure. This is one of the most difficult fights in movement work, to keep the public motivated after a big swell of public attention or a major victory. It's keeping people's attention on LGBTQ plus rights after marriage equality passed, on racial justice after most of the recent protests died down, on civic engagement after the election. When life goes back to some semblance of normal for most people, we have to remember what this was like. We have to prioritize preventing this level of disaster in the future because we can 
It is possible to do so, to be prepared. We just have to choose to do it. One more quick vaccine story today, but it's a happy one. The United Kingdom officially began distributing the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine this morning, beginning with healthcare workers and individuals over the age of 80. Margaret Keenan, who will turn 91 next week, became the first person in the world to receive a COVID-19 vaccine as part of a mass vaccination program, as opposed to in a clinical trial. But the second person to receive the vaccine was... William Shakespeare. For real, 81-year-old Bill Shakespeare, as he's known from Warwickshire, called the vaccine groundbreaking, saying that it could make a difference to our lives from now on. Author Preeti Chibber said on Twitter, quote, Well, William Shakespeare wrote King Lear and got his vaccine during the pandemic. What did you do? End quote. Or as fellow author Kat Howard cheerfully tweeted, A plague on no more houses. End quote. And in case you're wondering about the oddity of a man today being named William Shakespeare, well, there are allegedly at least 16 William Shakespeare's in the U.S. right now, and I'd presume there are even more in the United Kingdom. And I will say that back when Facebook was just starting to expand beyond colleges, I decided one day to friend every single William Shakespeare who signed up on Facebook, and I found about eight or so of them. So it's a surprisingly common name. Of course, as Bill Shakespeare's relatives have reminded folks on Twitter, the most important part of this story is that the people who most need it are getting vaccinated, and soon Shakespeare and many of his peers will get to see their families again after many long months apart. British Health Secretary Matt Hancock has dubbed today V-Day to mark this momentous turning point in the pandemic, definitely a day worth celebrating. And isn't it nice not to just have good news, but to even have a little funny anecdote you can make lighthearted jokes about as well? I'd almost forgotten what that feels like. Mount Everest is apparently taller than we previously thought. The most commonly cited height of Mount Everest dates back to a survey conducted in the 1950s, but this new height, as officially measured by Nepal and China, is about three feet higher than the old one, putting the new official height at 29,031 feet, or around 8,848 meters. So is it actually taller somehow, or do we just have more accurate measurements? Kind of a combination of both, but mostly the latter. Quoting the Washington Post, The exact height of Everest is a moving target, geologists say, thanks to shifting tectonic plates and the occasional earthquake. The former pushes the mountain's height ever so slightly upward each year, while the latter can cause it to sink. End quote. This new measurement is a joint effort between Nepal, who began the process, and China, who joined after the process began in 2018. Here's how Nepal reached this figure. Quote, The country's surveyors employed two methods to measure the mountain. The first was based on trigonometry, a time-tested technique that is also known as a leveling survey, and the second used the latest technology, relying on a combination of readings from a satellite navigation system and a complex model of sea level. It wasn't easy. A Nepali surveyor who lugged a global positioning device and a ground-penetrating radar to the summit of Everest last year lost the tip of a toe to frostbite. His team faced a life-threatening shortage of oxygen on their descent. 
Other surveyors transported a $200,000 piece of equipment called a gravimeter to 297 spots in Nepal. The gravimeter measures the force of gravity at a given location. Its readings are crucial to forming the detailed model of where sea level lies beneath Everest's hulk of rock. Satellite readings alone are not sufficient to calculate height above sea level. End quote. China then compared new data with surveys of the mountain from 1975 and 2005. All of that combined led to this new measurement, which scientists say will be the new standard, as they can't imagine anything more accurate. In addition to having a more accurate read, the collaboration was presented as a show of harmony between Nepal and China, and demonstrating the two nations' strong relationship with each other. So, if you've been training to reach the peak of Mount Everest, you'll now have to prepare for just one more meter. We are officially in end-of-year wrap-up season with listicles, and I feel like the past week in particular has been really heavy on best books of the year lists. Jason posted his own annual best books of the year list on cocky.org this morning, and it is chock-full of great recommendations. These lists are always really dangerous for me because I see lots of shiny covers or intriguing titles, and I just want to read all of them, and there are not enough hours in the day. If you, however, would rather not judge a book by its cover, you know, maybe you want to find something to read that you know you will enjoy, not because it has an impressive author or it's a book everyone says you should read, but just because you purely enjoy it, then you should check out a website called Recommend Me a Book. It generates the first page of a random book for you to read without telling you the title or author of the book. So after you read that little excerpt, you can choose to reveal the title and author in case you want to actually go read the whole book. Alternatively, it also makes a bit of a fun guessing game. There's a combination of classics and newer books, as well as an option for self-published and indie authors to promote their own books, so that helps diversify the collection a bit. And plus, you can submit books that may or may not be approved to help grow the collection. And when you are searching for a book, you can choose to filter them by genre. So, for example, if you know you only want to see random sci-fi recommendations, you just hit the gear button in the bottom right-hand corner. It really is a cool concept and a pretty fun way to find recommendations, so I'll put a link in the show notes for the desktop version, but there is also an app available for both iOS and Android. One more quick rec for you. YouTube channel News Be Funny has continued their tradition of posting a supercut of the best news bloopers from the past year. And as you might imagine, 2020s is even wilder than usual, with many anchors having reported from home for large chunks of the year. So lots of cats and some half-naked dads. It's pretty great. Uh, I don't have much more to say about it, but I'll put a link in the show notes for you if you need a laugh today. But that is it from me. I'm going to go check in on how all those William Shakespeare's I friended on Facebook 13 years ago are doing. I hope you have a great rest of your day, and I'll talk to you again tomorrow. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. 
CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.